When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sheila Shoiga, and this is Ready to Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not. But my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. In this episode, I speak to musician, podcaster, author, activist, and all-round great human, Niall Bredy Breslin. I just knew TV was not for me, and then I was utterly lost for a few years. I, I wasn't sure music was what I wanted to do anymore, and then... I went back to do my masters, and then I kind of felt right. I, I, weirdly enough, for the first time in my life, it feels like education is not not being forced upon me, and I'm really enjoying this. And I'm I'm actually enjoying learning something I know nothing about, and actually working through it. And then that opened more doors for me. I started to go right. I had this kind of thing in my head to to look at a PhD, but I didn't think I'd be a. Well, I still don't. I still have that uh, belief. An imposter syndrome, everyone does, and it's, it's actually healthy to have a little bit of it, you know. And I'm looking at this now, and I, like, I mean, I've just only put my proposal in, I don't even know. Right. And I'm kind of going, What am I doing? What am I doing? Niall lives in Wicklow with his girlfriend Louise and their new puppy Stevie, and his Where Is My Mind podcast show will be live next Friday, the 28th of April, in the Three Olympia. In this conversation, we cover so much. It's serious at times and lighter in other parts as he talks about things like emotional intelligence, shame, labelling, dealing with conflict, the benefits of meditation and embarking on a PhD. And I started the conversation by admitting that I was extremely unprepared for our chat. Good, good. You are exactly (laughs) how I walk into every podcast, depending... It has really backfired on me as well. Yeah, sometimes. That's, that's, I'm, I'm like, trying not to think of that. No, no, I, I think it we know be, each other enough. Yeah. 
but I've been in conversations where in the middle of it, you can just see the sweat dripping off the tip of my nose. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I was talking to a guy, I won't say his name, but he's an incredibly well-known academic. Right. And I knew them after the first sentence. Number one, this is going to be a difficult interview. And number okay. two, I have no clue what I'm talking about. So I, I kind of kept trying to deflect it into him to be personal. He had no interest. He's like, I'm not here to talk about myself. I'm like, oh shit. Oh no. So yeah, I was just like, as I was, thank God I was on Zoom. So then I just took up, I took up my, I had Zoom on and I stared really hard into his eyes as if I was watching him, but I actually had his name Googled. <laughs> I was just going through Google, asking him questions from Wikipedia. Like if I'm, if, if I'm interviewing an author about a book, I will read the book. Yeah. And by the way, this is like, I hope that doesn't sound disrespectful because I'm you know, like I think you're brilliant and, and I'm excited about talking. I to rather you. that. So I think it's probably better not to overthink it nope. and just go with the flow. And like to be honest, in the few minutes we've we've been chatting, there's loads to talk about. So I think we'll we'll start with the stuff that we mentioned. So I basically said that last night I went to uh, Jenny Keane, who is a sex educator. I went to her show in Vicar Street. It was brilliant. And you said you're doing a lot of work in shame at the moment. Well, I'm I'm studying, but I'm studying. Slightly uh, deflecting from sex education, I'm studying the Irish psychiatric systems over the last 200 years. So since they opened in 1817. That sounds intense. You know what? It is intense, but it's actually, it's immensely interesting because we keep talking about mental health stigma and we're having mental health awareness weeks, which are great. But we really don't know where it comes from, how they were formed, how they were kind of embedded into our very psyches. And you need to get into the weeds to understand how to erode something. And the reason I'm talking about shame is shame was the pervasive prevailing wind when it came to how psychiatric institutions worked. Mm. And the church had nothing to do with it. The church, basically, the church-state relationship started in, I think, 1833. That's a statement that's blown my mind. I always say the church weaponized shame and gave us the gun. That's that's the reality of it. But in the psychiatric hospitals, the the institutions were set up in 1817, so it predated the the relationship between the state, church and state, in 1833. So it was the British, it was the British uh, government that set up the institutions. Okay. And after we got our independence, the two things that didn't change in Ireland were the post boxes and the asylums. And the asylums were used basically, in many ways, as a way of putting people. Say you you had a brother who was a bit lazy, a bit different, didn't really do much work around the farm. And there was this huge amount of poverty in the, in Ireland, huge, mm. le- it was a famine, civil wars, you name it. So it's, you couldn't afford to feed him. So you would say, my brother did something to my mother and he would be institutionalized without evidence. It was you, under a legal act called the Dangerous Lunatics Act. Right. That's what it was called. So basically by 1950, Ireland had the highest level of people in coercive confinement globally in institutions. So... When we look at the way of course confinement history with Ireland, like the Magdalen Laundries and mm. the industrial schools, when you start to pull the thread on the psychiatric hospitals, it is truly, truly, truly mind-blowing mm. what was allowed happen in this country and what still has huge legacies. So the legacies are shame, the legacies that a lot of people ended up with those institutions who had very little wrong with them and never got out and died there. It but, is dark. So, But it, it is dark, but we knew it happened. So what I'm trying to do is, is understand... If we really, truly, as a as a country, want to erode the stigma and 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 move our systems forward to be far more humane and supportive, then we got to understand where they came from. But that has obviously nothing to do with sex education. But no, it's but it's wrapped up in the you know. And I suppose what we were talking about was what I loved about you know. This, and this chat is not about Jenny; it's about you. But it's it's about the fact that last night was a celebration. It was very freeing, and it's wonderful to see 
that and she even said it herself at the beginning like she couldn't have seen the show a number of years ago happening in Ireland but here we are 2023 and it was fully embraced and it was really fun and it was really educational Ireland is I think if you all step back for a second and you look kind of slightly objectively at Ireland we are immensely good at progressing Mm. in in certain areas we went from being probably one of the most conservative countries in Europe to arguably one of the most liberal in a very short space of time and we had marriage equality we repealed it and the thing about these campaigns and these they could have really torn society apart but they didn't I mean there was definitely it was definitely difficult at times and I spoke to many of the people who ran the marriage equality campaign who said that that was a that was that didn't happen overnight that no. took years and years yes. and years of conversations and I, I was very proud of the fact that these very uh, at times difficult kind of campaigns that could have been quite divisive really weren't as divisive as they could have become if it was America mm. or you look at Brexit or you yeah. look at America right now it's it's falling apart and it's, even democratically, it's starting to get really, you know, when you, when truth is completely eroded from any conversation, mm. what well, is democracy anymore? And also, I always say democracy is hanging by a thread and social media is there with the scissors. That's mm. what's happening. Yeah. But I think Ireland, the smoking ban. So I think we're very good at kind we of come on, right. Come on board, don't we? We need to change things here, guys. This isn't working. Yeah, yeah. And we're progressive enough for it. And I, I, think, I think the reason that is because we came from such a, a dark kind of view of of how we treated women and children how we treated anybody who was particularly in any way different and I think we it was almost like we just had enough and the other thing I do say about that though and what I'm learning a lot in my studies we also have to be patient there's people who've had been conditioned for decades in a mm. country that was deeply conservative and these are very good people with big hearts and just have been conditioned in a way that it might take them a bit longer. And that's where I get worried about people. I always say within activism, your audience is not the people who agree with you. It's the people who don't agree with you. They're, they're the conversations you need to have in, in a way. So yeah, I think Ireland should be very proud of itself. And there's obviously an awful lot we got to work on. And we look mm. at things like homelessness and policy, bad neoliberal policies that governments, you know, continue to enact around the world, even though they've failed. You know, we can't leave things like home, people having a home and health to the marketplace. We can't. Yeah, we absolutely cannot do that. And I think, I think Ireland needs to believe in itself a little bit more and believe that if if we, you know, whoever is our next government, I don't know, but this isn't about politics. I always say it's about people. Like we, yeah. we can do better than that. And I also think when you look at, I'm really interested in. I interviewed a guy called uh, Professor Matthew Williams in a podcast, and he wrote a book called The Signs of Hate. Mm. which people go, why do you do that mindfulness podcast? I said, because we need to understand hate. We need to understand why we're exposed, seeing so much of it, why it feels a little bit out of control right now. And to me, like anger, there's a lot of anger out there and the anger is understandable. It's been a shit show of a couple of years for pretty much most people. Yeah. And we need to aim our anger at something that's it feels natural to, to, so and sometimes anger can be, blinding and I have a few friends who have these opinions that I don't agree with and I often ask them where does your actual I ask them where does your hate come from mm. and nine times out of ten they haven't a clue they don't know where it comes from they don't know was it was it a bias was it just a lazy stereotype trope or prejudice that they show out is it just easier to do that and as I said the currency of social media is division that's the only way social media can work yeah. it cannot work without division the algorithms are designed around division it didn't start out that way. I don't think these 
amazing social media companies decided let's divide the world Mm. but when they saw the amount of interaction and engagement that division gets they were like well we got to go with the flow and that's ultimately what we've done and twitter is a prime example of that and twitter is a cesspit and it brings out we're far better than that as people humans are better than that and i i I believe that i've actually got rid of my twitter account i i can't do it i just yeah i find it difficult I, i find you know, if you look out the window right now as we're talking and Twitter was actually real life, you'd see the whole city burning yeah, and people punching yeah, heads yeah. off each other yeah, and screaming at lampposts. But uh, we're better than that. I do get it. And without context, it's just noise. Mm. And context is everything. And unfortunately, social media erodes context. There's very little to any context in social media. Yeah. And that becomes a problem. And I think, you know, also when I look at the media, I think I also have huge empathy because... You know, when digital media came along, it it was a force. It was a huge force. And there was a lot. The music industry, for example, had to figure out what we're going to do here. Like, Mm. it's completely changed the game. The internet changed the game. And it took a few years for it to get its head around it. And I think it's the same with the media landscape where you're kind of figuring out we need to survive here. We actually Mm. need to survive. And engagement is the way to do it. So I understand it. I do understand it. But I do think there has to be, there's a, a line between public interest and which is what is at the heart of journalism and it's yeah. important. But I think also there's that and throwing people under buses is yeah. that, you know, there's a, there is a difference. And I think people are well aware of that. But I, I feel personally, from my own perspective, I've just kind of made a decision in my own life to, to go back to what I love, which is education mm. and dedicate my time to it. And, you know, when I did the voice, I knew very clearly by the end of that, this is absolutely not what I want to do. Yeah. I do not want it. I had a a really good agent who was like setting up all these different things for me overseas. And I was like, and I remember ringing him going, actually, I'm sorry for wasting your time, but I'm not doing this. And I I really enjoyed it. I have to say I enjoyed it. It was a huge opportunity and profile helper and supporter for me. But I, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I made a very clear decision to walk away from from it and well good on you for listening best thing to I ever did yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly because if you had pursued that it would have just led to probably more mental pressure and mm-hmm. I would have been terrible on TV as well like I was the, I was brutal on The Voice because the lads the producers were like give me the you know the, when you watch the entertainment TV you can never watch it again so you sit there yeah. and you, you would have done 12 hours of filming and it'd be 11 o'clock at night and you'd be sitting in front of the producer and they'd ask you a question and you'd be like and you give them this like real meaningful <laughs> answer and they're like, um, yeah, just give us a little bit shorter and s- step out the bullshit there, will you? So yeah, I'm like, yeah. it's down to the wire. Next weekend, we're going to see who really, you know, this type of stuff. I and know. that's all they wanted. I said, just tell me what you want. So it becomes, it is quite formulaic. That is what it is. Yeah, it is. And um, yeah. I was like, ah, oh, you know, don't think about it. I, <laughs> I loved, I did like the live shows because you weren't sure what was going to happen. And I, my favorite part of the voice was when Dolores came in. Because yeah. me and Dolores used to just have the most hilarious conversations that you would not believe. We're sitting there and it got me through the days sometimes. And then on the show, like, they'd be announcing our name to go out on live television. Dolores would be standing beside me and me and Dolores beside each other. It was very, very funny. Like, I'm yeah, six course. foot six. And yeah. she's, uh, but she, she'd just go, I'm going for a walk. I said, you can't go for a walk. They're <laughs> announcing our names. And I'd be shivering there that she was going to, and she would only do it to wind me up. And she goes, actually, I'm, I'm a bit hungry. And, and and there was there was one, I think, one of the shows I did where you actually see my arm around her. I wasn't hugging her. I was trying to get her to stop walking away. 
<laughs> but she was only doing to wind me up. But, uh, it worked. But yeah, I, I, she was some crack. I have to say, I really enjoyed that year. And yeah, and I got I got on well with everybody. And Keen yeah. was me and Keen. You know, there was obviously the setup that we didn't, but we got on really, really well. When was the voice? Because it's. I mean, I remember it really well, and I remember you know thinking it was it was a great show. It was really successful. But we're going back a few years now, aren't we? Yeah, I don't even remember. Feck, is, is it, it 10 years? It's definitely 10 years. Yeah, I don't, is it? maybe not 10 years. I think it ended about seven years ago. Okay. And it was five years, so it was a yeah, lot. It was a big and, chunk and of time. Five years yeah. is doggy years in, in TV. Like, yeah, big time. It's a long, long thing. Yeah. But yeah, I enjoyed it. I just knew TV was not for me. And then I was utterly lost for a few years. I, I wasn't sure music was what I wanted to do anymore. And then I went back to do my master's and then I kind of felt right. I, I, weirdly enough, for the first time in my life, it feels like education is not, not being forced upon me. And I'm really enjoying this. And I'm, I'm actually enjoying learning something I know nothing about and actually working through it. And then that opened more doors for me. I started to go, right, I had this kind of thing in my head to, to look at a PhD, but I didn't think I'd be able... Well, I still don't. I still have that uh, belief and imposter syndrome everyone does and it's, it's actually healthy to have a little bit of it you know and I'm looking at this now and I, like I mean I've just only put my proposal in I don't even know right. and I'm kind of going what am I doing what am I doing what it's am a, I doing it's an animal anyone an I, animal. That, that has been through it yeah and I, I, I and people go are you able I don't have a clue if I'm able I know I'm very interested in it yeah I'm very interested in the topic and you've already done a lot of studies so in terms of I suppose you know the, the machine is oiled as it were in the it sense is, that yeah. you've yeah you, you, you it's not like you're coming in cold oh god from nothing to now facing <laughs> a PhD there, like, leaving certain maths going <laughs> why am I here you're sitting there pissing sweat into an equation and you're one. You're sitting looking at the adjudicator. Go, just give me the give me the ordinary one. I I don't know what I'm thinking. Uh, but I I I did. I think the big thing with the PhD for me is so. Yeah, I'm looking at the 200 years of what we've done, and I'm kind of my hypothesis is like I think we can all admit it hasn't worked. So yeah. what will what can work? And for me, the area I am so beyond passionate about when it comes to mental health is early intervention. I believe that so much more resources should be pumped into early intervention programs. Lust for Life, my charity, are now in over a thousand primary schools with our uh, emotional literacy and mental health programs. It will be in every school by the end of 2024. It's completely free for primary schools. There's no cost to them. It's evidence-based. We we did the evaluations at UCD and DCU and we did it the right way. Yeah. And we funded it and and it wasn't easy, but I 100% believe that if we can stop putting our entire focus on crisis management and look at how we can help younger kids at an early age across the board and that includes assessments for things like ADHD and uh, other learning difficulties people might have. If we can assess and help and support kids at that age, you're going to see a different world when mm-hmm. it comes to mental health. And my real aim is then we elaborate that out into our secondary school systems. And in the next maybe 10 years, which is unfortunately how long this takes, you see an entire group from first class up to leaving cert level who've got this entire program of support that is consistent, that works with each other. Now, you're not going to save or you're not going to solve all problems, but you're going to take the pressure off the crisis intervention model, mm. which is, you know, anyone who read the CAMS report in January, it was it's the st- it has to be the stake in the ground. It has to be the, the end point for how we treat kids when it comes to mental health. We have children being left on medication unmonitored, really strong medication. We have kids ad- kids in adult psychiatric units. We have a lot of kids who just can't get access. Now, I don't, I don't find that acceptable in any shape or form in a population of 5 million people that calls itself one of the wealthiest countries in Europe. Yeah. There's a fundamental reason 
that this isn't working because it's the Pandora's box no one's willing to open. And that's the reality of it. And anyone just was honest about mental health. We continue to spend 6% of our health budget on mental health, 6%. World Health Organization says a minimum of 13. I'm more interested in what we spend that 6% on. And that's what my study is going to be. What are we spending it on? And generally, it's the medical model. And yes, the medical model is absolutely crucial and it's mm. part of the equation. But unfortunately, right now, it's the only show in town. And we need to start supporting children early with the right types of therapeutic interventions, whether it's play therapy, whether it is psychotherapy or whatever. Yeah. But we need to stop now taking thinking that this isn't something we got to we got to we got to change and change fast. And why I do this work is because Ireland can do it. We're good at this. There's no reason we can't come together. And I don't believe two things. I am not problem admiration society. I don't throw stones at problems. I have an element of empathy for politicians here. I don't think they know what to do. Mm. I genuinely don't. I think they're a bit overwhelmed by the fact that the, the system seems like when they read the CAMS report, I, I, I could imagine no human being with a beaten heart and soul wasn't upset by that. Yeah. And I think they're a bit worried about what do we do here? And I think this, this is going to require collective action. But part of my study is to go, what can I bring to the table? I believe early intervention is because I've looked at all the other interventions that we've done. I've looked at insulin coma therapy, ECT, lobotomies, psycho, psychopharmacology. We gave people malaria. <laughs> that was a treatment we used in psychiatric hospitals. Really? We got blood over from, from people with malaria and we put people into comas with malaria. These were the treatments we Whoa. were doing with mental health. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone's doing it with any malice or intent, but they were trying to, let's just knock the person out and think that's going to solve the problem. The other thing we got to look at is trauma-informed care. We got we to gotta look, reevaluate how we look at trauma. And I work with a lot of brilliant psychologists and they all say the first question the person should be asked is what happened to you? Yeah. Now what's wrong with you? And I think these are the, the shifts that we need to see. And I do believe Ireland can do it. And I do believe that our politics, I don't buy into this that, it's all. I think politics, unfortunately, is about the preservation of power or the gaining of power. And they get a little bit blinded by that rather than the fact that politics is about governing and supporting the needs of the people that put you there. And that's what it needs to be. And yes, I believe some of them do that and want to do that. But I think the system itself gets so panicky about how do we get power or hold power. And when it comes to mental health, it's a Pandora's box and nobody's mm. willing to go with that or open it. I sat in the Youth Mental Health Task Force a number of years ago. I sat there for 15 minutes and realized it was a talking shop. Okay. So these are the realities. Yeah. And listening to this, people listening to this going, what can we do to help? Um, there's lots you can do, but this is on those that govern us. We have to look at better systems of support, community level supports. We got to look at early intervention and we got to look at better crisis intervention mm. when people do get to that point of crisis how can we more humanely support them and sustainably support them and then when they leave that point of crisis how do we keep supporting them yeah a big ask i get it it's overwhelming yeah and it's a slow process yeah. but it, this is why the work you're doing is so it's so important it's so valuable um like listening to you speak there and whenever i hear you speak you are and I, I know, I don't know how you feel about compliments. So I, I always kind of. I'm Irish, you'll be careful here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. Might get but get on their neck. I'll just say it fast. You're very impressive. Uh, and that's why I think sitting down to talk to you is we can have so many, go down so many different avenues and have so many different kinds of conversations. But, you know, they talk about, when, I mean, even when you're talking about the voice and, you know, 
we talk about in life, you know, finding something you're good at and doing that and and improving on it and becoming, you know, I suppose become becoming a master of it. But I mean, you've done that in different areas of your life. You've you're you're multi skilled. Um, but it's about finding something that you're good at and then fulfills you. But the most the I suppose the, the, the highest level of that is finding something that fulfills you and helps other people. Mm. And I suppose you're doing that kind of work that must be satisfying. Maybe that's not the reason you're doing it, but it's a nice add on that. OK, I'm doing something that actually matters here. You know, I potentially will have a positive impact on kids I may never meet. Mm. Like that's well, that's it's a lot of it potent. is me. Like I look at back and my two things about that. I always believed that my happiness lay in achievement. So that's yeah. all I ever did. Okay. It never did make me happy. Mm. Uh, and that's just the truth. I, I, I kept looking for that next thing that be the thing that makes me feel proud of myself. I'll be and happy when. Connected, I'll be happy. And I just kept doing it. And what ultimately changed in my life with that was I never actually knew what my value system was. I never, really never knew what I stood for. I, I knew what I should stand for, what other people stand for. And it was a really skilled, challenging, difficult therapeutic journey that ultimately got me to my value system and I was like when people go what are your values your first thing you do is jump in google and look what are my values <laughs> but I actually was I was being challenged on each and every single one of them why and what he was trying to do and I know this now and this is the real power of therapy when it connects I over intellectualize everything right since I was a child I basically I went to a very abusive primary school where there was a lot of physical abuse by the, the, the Christian brothers and the teachers. And it did something to me, really shut me down emotionally. And what I started to learn is it became easier to feel nothing than to feel everything. Like they were hitting children, like whatever way you look at it, that, that the most basic need of a child is to feel safe. That is yeah. the fundamental starting point of a child. And I kind of cut myself off and then I moved to Israel when I was 13, my dad's, and there was a particular operation accountability or whatever you want to call it. It was a war there. Because your dad was in the army. Yeah, it kind of clicked something in me and it it hit hit me off to this kind of pretty destructive teenage uh, journey. And then when I came back, Kurt Cobain died. And I asked the teacher what happened to Kurt Cobain and he punched my desk and screamed in my face and called Kurt Cobain a coward. And that was my mental health education. Right, okay. In the midst of it all. So there's your context. So, yeah. When I started to talk about my own journey after 15 years of not talking about it, it was my mother saying things like, what difference would have made if somebody had said something in the 90s about their own mental health or, you know, somebody spoke to teenagers about it. And I said, well, it would have changed everything because I lived a a huge amount of time believing that there was, I thought was possessed by the devil. That was a viable option in the 90s, by the way. And that kind of stuff, it, it became very destructive. Yeah. And if somebody had said something, so that became in the back of my head when she said that. And then I, you know, I had my, I had my nephew and I was like, I don't want him growing up here in this, this shit. I just don't. It's ridiculous. I, I also feel like, although my education was grand, it kind of sidestepped the most important key parts of being a human being, which is, is the very fact that we have emotions and we have to understand and navigate them. So that was a big driving force behind me speaking and coming out and going, right, this this country has had too much of an effect up history and there must be a lot of people suppressing it or repressing it or internalizing it. And there was and there is. And that was kind of a driving point. But then I just started, I 
the, going back to study was a different thing. It was like, right, it, it became less about myself then and more about the systems. So what shocked me when I started to speak about my mental health is to see how dysfunctional our systems were. That was shocking. Mm. And as, that got, as, as the conversation grew in Ireland and society started to actually to stand up and talk about this, really strangely, you started to watch the systems regress. And maybe that's because more people were looking for intervention and support and because we were now talking and it just wasn't there. And then I heard someone say that, you know, COVID caused it. COVID, COVID exposed it. It didn't cause it. Right. I'm 10 years doing this work mm. and these systems are not improving. They're not improving. Assessments, very difficult to get assessments for young children. You know, active kind of therapeutic supports. The, the reality is when they do get them, we have some amazing people working in this system, especially in CAMS. You've got some of the best trained psychologists, psychotherapists and psychiatrists. You have amazing people. And then you have the other side of it, though, the whole realm of psychologists. It's not regulated. And there's a lot of people pretending yes. I think that to have is, the qualification and they, they don't. That's really important. That's risky. But it's also, we look at things like you come into a school. I spoke to Dr. Coleman Octor about this. So my partner, Louise, is a psychologist. Yeah. She's an amazing psychologist. Yeah, yeah. And she, when you go into a school, what, what would be really, really good, and I think the Irish government looked at this and there's nothing's happened, Coleman said, there's a signposting person. So a person who's in the school who's sitting there and a kid comes and says, I have this problem and he knows or she knows exactly where to send that person. Like, this is where we got to go. What's happening now is kids are being kind of, uh, sent or signposted to the wrong place. So it might be a, a child with substance dependency or substance, substance abuse or something. And they're being sent to the wrong person and they're, at, and they're waiting maybe six months and then they get to the person. The person's like, actually, I'm not the person you should be oh, talking to. Right, okay. It's that dysfunctional. Oh, yeah. And not only that, we got to look at like an entire... So I, another one was uh, Norma Foley announced. When we, when we launched our schools program for Lust for Life, it was an amazing event and all these principals from all over Ireland came from the Desh schools from you know, from, from the Educate Togethers, from, you know, Gwale schools, everything was amazing. And there was two principals there I got talking to and that very day there was an announcement that they're providing, a, I know, a, 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 quite a substantial lump of funding for counselling and psychology interventions in schools and primary schools. And the principal said to me, that equates to their particular school equated to 180 euro a year. So there's these announcements being made, but when you actually do the fundamental breakdown of maths of it, we're kind of going, okay, this, this is, they know they got to do something. So they've got to make these announcements, but what really is changing? And they made things like vision for change and sharing the vision, which were really great policies, but they weren't implemented, largely not implemented. So for me, my study is not in psychology. It's in sociology. It's in the structural mm. social forces that are preventing us getting adequate supports for young people and for everybody really and how we need to find ways of better recruitment so we have more people better interventions better design interventions and that's a big body of work but oh, back to the 200 years of looking at Ireland when it comes to mental health really the most prevailing issue were social forces so like as I said, in 1950, Ireland had the highest level of people in psychiatric hospitals in the world, globally, more than the USSR at the time. And so if you want to go down the list of why, mm. first, were Irish people just more mental illness? Nope. There's no evidence to show that. Right. Was it the church? Nope. No evidence to show that. Okay. Was it colonialism? These all probably had impacts, but, you know, essentially not. 
But when you really start delving deeper and deeper into it, it was to me economics. It was economy. Poverty, Poverty was just this huge, yeah. huge impact. And now you look at things like inequality and you look at things like neoliberalism, where in America, for example, we have these tragedies with gun crime and and school shootings. And within within a day, you're going to have a Republican coming out and blaming mental health, but not telling you that they, they cut down every single bill in the House to provide mental health funding for schools. Mm. They, you know, The Texas governor, after the Uvalde shootings, he within an hour blame mental health and not gun not gun laws but didn't tell you he had cut funding by 250 million euro the year before dollars the year before these are the realities of yeah. this so i keep looking at the social forces they're what i'm very interested in and the reason i'm doing that is i i think there's huge answers to be found in that kind of stuff but yes in terms of psychology and that report the, the rt1 mm, um documentary. documentary on on I think it's really regulation is the most important thing here. Yeah. It's crucial, especially for assessments. Mm. And that particular show talked about the assessment. You know, Louise, my partner, does assessments. They're fairly, fairly big bodies of work. Yeah, there are a lot of work in them, and you got to be quite skilled to do them. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we got to be very, very careful. And you know, I think also we got to we we got to. It feels a little bit disjointed at the moment, but yeah, that that type of work is crucial here. Mm. Let's talk about something lighter just for a minute, um, because when I met you, you said got a puppy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did. I adore dogs. Yeah, I adore cats as well. I'm a weird cat guy as well. A lot of people don't like cats. I uh, you know what I love about cats. Yeah, the same thing I love about. Pe- I love where I stand. I love. I love the people that I know where I stand with them, mm-hmm. even if it's not in a great place. I love people who are honest with me are blunt yeah. are straight up and you just there's no bullshit with them i love those types of people yeah and that's what cats are like <laughs> yeah, you yeah, literally yeah. if they like you they like you if you don't forget about it yeah, there's no middle ground no, with cats. no and i love that about them and they're just they're just <laughs> just think about them they're like do you know remember the comedian jack d yeah C- kind of reminds me of cats <laughs> just like, yeah, whatever. yeah whatever yeah yeah, just, yeah it's yeah. like they can see through people's <laughs> bullshit uh, dogs on the other hand are different they just love everything yeah everything's yeah. great yeah. and i've had so many dogs grown up i've I, I spoke to you i i'm i used to i'm always wary of dogs because i get so heartbroken when when they inevitably yeah die yeah and i had so many kids dogs grown up that i just i used to i almost got you know because it became so upsetting when it happened that you're like and we had we went through an awful run of them some when i was growing up dogs that just got sick or whatever yeah. so yeah and i don't know do you know what i love when i when i do the homework on dogs it comes down to one thing it's the unconditionality of it mm. it's just that it's just yeah not you know whatever's going wrong or going on in your life not a shit that they give yeah. and it's that is a rarity in this world and yeah. the other thing i think sometimes you know in you might experience this sometimes, but I think everything's become very transactional. I have, I have friends, friends who have said to me, well, it doesn't fit my brand when I've asked them oh. to, to um, like, not about for not something like, should we, will we do this? Um, no, it doesn't. I'm like, it's this transactional thing. It feels yeah. like friendship yeah. even has become a marketplace. Like, like, the, like, yeah. and then you go on TikTok and someone's like, you know, it, everything is a, is, do you want to be rich? Do you, you need to stop sitting <laughs> on your arse? And yeah, like, I'm like, oh, f- fuck off will you for five seconds and 
what's what I love about dogs they just don't care about all that nonsense yeah. and it's that's the love you get at them and like I got up this morning and there was shit everywhere yeah. and it was just like <laughs> and I've never been so happy in my life to pick up shit you know what I mean <laughs> come here what just, is it's just do another one there <laughs> yeah I'll do I'll do it with my bare hands this time oh okay to my to my how so are, am I guessing like a young young puppy six uh, seven weeks oh yeah really young our, yeah, friend, oh really young it, it was too big for the, the other, so we took him in. And the breed is ain't a small breed. No, it's a mastiff. Mastiff, they're a big creature. Yeah, and like and the I puppies going to get bigger. They're going to get bigger, and what, what I want to do as well is I I, 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 I like the idea of uh, fostering dogs as well. I like I love Jack Russells, so I'm not yeah. for like like, like that's going to be little and large. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I think it's just getting back into the idea of having dogs again. And to be honest with you, I was. I wasn't in the right place to have them. I think you have to dedicate, you have to do it. There's a, there's a part of yourself you have to give your dog. Yeah. You have to. And I wasn't in that position. But you are now? I am. And I remember Liam, my best mate, he said something to me about his dog, Kaiser, who I adored, a bull terrier. Beautiful, beautiful dog. Great name. What have you named the puppy by the way? Uh, Stevie. Stevie. Yeah. As a Nix? Yeah. Class. And uh, when he died, when Kaiser died, Liam sent this, like Liam's a big biker, a big, and hairy long beard and like and he just said dogs get to a place in your heart that humans can't reach mm. and I was just like whoa Jesus he's so right so there's there has, yeah. there's a part of yourself that you're giving to them and and you have to give it to them and there's a huge part of them that they give to you as well so I think to me I wasn't trying to not get dogs I was trying to make sure I was in a position in my own head to, to, to be able to dedicate a part of myself to them yeah I get you and you were probably, it was a protection thing because the deeper you love, the deeper you feel when they're no longer there. And I think that's that's part of therapy. Like back to the idea of saying, what therapy started? My, my, when I, sorry, I, I talked about myself over-intellectualizing things. So I keep everything up in the head. Yeah. That's what I would do. Yeah. Because it feels safe up there because you can rationalize. But what therapy does, and it sounds like a shit 80s power ballad when I'm saying <laughs> this, but it, it literally opens your, your heart a little bit. That's yeah. what it does. It opens up. So it's like you cut that bridge between your head and your heart and you cut it down because it just became an easier thing to do to do that and then what therapy does is starts to rebuild it and then you start to feel again and that's fucking terrifying sometimes mm. uh, but it is it's crucial it's a crucial part of of the journey is to learning to feel stuff and letting yourself feel it even if it feels terrifying for you and at times a good skilled professional or a psychiatrist will bring you there slowly in the right way and there's a moment and yeah, it can be overwhelming, mm. but that's, that, that is definitely to me, the, the thing that therapy did for me, it started to open me up again. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I haven't seen you in person for a good few years, but obviously I, I you know, I follow you on Instagram, you know, but I, I've met you at different stages down to the years. Um, and no more than all of us, we all evolve, we all change, circumstances happen, they shape us. But you, I've, I, and I, I know this from listening to your podcast, from following you, seeing in interviews, you're also extremely calm now in a way that, um, in a way that you weren't before, I suppose. There's, in in yeah. the early in the early times I met you versus mm. now. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely been a transition and there's a many, many reasons for that. And though. that's not me dissing you. No, not way. at all. It's I, just, I suppose, to acknowledge your growth. Yeah, and I am. And there's reasons for that. And obviously you get older, you start to realize what actually matters in life and what yeah. doesn't matter. That's one thing. Secondly, you... I'm very at ease in myself. I've never felt that before. I never knew what feeling easy in myself. I never knew how to rest. I didn't even know how to rest. I couldn't sit still. I felt deeply uncomfortable all the time. I I would I would physically shake sometimes if I sat still too, for, for too long. And there was an internal energy in me that I still have that I wasn't able to put. It actually allowed me to do so much, but it was like a combustion engine. It was just gone all the time mm. and it would drive my head into overload. And... I used to get angry with that and be pissed off at that internal energy. And what I learned to do is how to actually harness it mm. and use it. And meditation was a massive, massive, massive part of my journey. And I'm not, I know a lot of people struggle with it. And I know a lot of people find it challenging. And the reason you find it challenging is because the modern world's condition does to be, it doesn't want you there. It doesn't want you in, in, in space of self-awareness because you can't be manipulated. You can't be, you can't, get social media algorithms dividing people and getting you angry. It can't do that to you when you're self-aware. You, you, you have a control over your reactions and that becomes, to as much you can control your, some, sometimes your reactions are primal or red mist and you, that just makes you human. But you start to control the space you take up in society and the space society takes up in you. And that becomes a complete game changer when it comes to mindfulness. But then... What we're seeing with mindfulness now is what we refer to when we were studying as Mac mindfulness or mindfulness light or, you know, the people who need to consistently film themselves or show themselves. And then you have the Wim Hof where, how long did you hold your breath for? There yeah, it becomes to, almost competitive. It's an ego thing. Yeah. It's and it's ego. an amazing thing. Wim Hof is amazing. Mm-hmm. But there has to be something we do as human beings where we're not being measured, where we don't need to perform. We we're don't not need being to, judged. We don't need to talk about it or, or share it with others. No one else's business. Yeah. And where we're not judging ourselves. And the most crucial part of mindfulness practice is non-judgment. And that's a difficult thing for people to do because a lot of us are hardwired for it. Especially you bring shame back into the equation. Shame, basically, its weapon, its real weapon is judgment. It, that's mm. how it uses you. Mm. Self-judgment, judging of others. And in meditation, you sit to practice. The key to this is that when you, you close your eyes to just focus on something like the breath of the body, and you just focus on it for a few moments, your mind is going to, that's what minds do. They drift. They're dynamic. I call them mind riots. They go, they go, your mind goes crazy. Yeah. We're not trying to stop that. You yeah. can't stop that. What you're trying to do is to stop following it. Mm. And bringing it back. And then not going, 
I knew I'd be shit at this. Why am I doing this? This is a waste of my time. They're all judgments. Mm. See what it feels like to let that go in practice, even if it's for five minutes. And over time, you start to realize the other thing with non-judgment. I tell the story. <clears throat> I played rugby. I wasn't well. There's okay. just no other way of putting it. I was very, very, very in a very difficult place where I wasn't really eating. I, I couldn't sleep. I was self-medicating, terrified I'd be drug tested. You know, Sanix is hardly a performance enhancing drug, but still you don't want your coach to find out you're you're doing just to sleep, like just to get some kind of sleep so I could turn up to train the next day and get my arse kicked in again. Mm. And it wasn't going well in any shape or form. But I interviewed my coach, Matt Williams, on the podcast a couple of years ago, who was my coach at the time. And I said, what did you think was wrong with me? Did you? That's all oh, right. And they? it was really emotional. He turned around and he yeah. said, we all thought you were an alcoholic and you didn't care. So, so that's what they saw. And I really respect them for being that honest. I wasn't. I didn't drink. And I cared a lot. I just was really in a very difficult space. <clears throat> so... That taught me one thing, and anyone listening to this, you need to start looking past people's behaviours. No matter what Twitter tells you, most people on earth don't want to be arseholes. Most people aren't arseholes, even if they do things that make you feel like they've hurt you. A lot of people don't want to do this. And I have this line I wrote, not everyone's intention is to hurt you. Look past your behaviours and words. Maybe they were hurt too. And not everyone's intention is to offend you. We all learn at our own pace, even if that sometimes frustrates you. And this is self-awareness. And this is non-judgment. And this changes things. That does not mean if someone's acting like an arsehole to you that you don't be assertive. And I all, like one of my favorite sayings is sometimes the most mindful thing you can do is tell someone to fuck off. Yeah, yeah. Because you've taken the space, you've realized this person is continuously pissed all over your buzz and has done it with some form of intention. And then you get assertive and go, no, I'm having it, lads. I'm not having it. That's perfectly fine. But you're not just reacting. You're not just blindingly reacting. Or taking their stuff in because it's not about you. If they're saying stuff about you that isn't fair rather than absorb it and get pissed off at them, it's it's really a reflection of what's going on in their also, lives. But also sometimes they are saying something that you should listen to. You know, well, there's yeah. some and that's yeah, that's yeah. what emotional intelligence is, is to go, right, maybe they're maybe they've a point. Maybe they're not making the point very well. But maybe they've a point. And that's when you go, listen, I get what you're trying to say to me, but I find out the way you're saying it a little bit a little bit difficult. And then if they have emotional intelligence, they go, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean that, but listen. And that's how it works. And I think to do that, part of that is to let go of the ego a little Mm. bit. And the one thing I've learned in my life is that an awful lot of the time I'm not right. And I'm actually perfectly comfortable with not being right. Mm. And if I find myself in a position where I'm not right, I'll go, actually, yeah, you're right, actually. I I, I missed this. And that's a lovely place to be because I wasn't that person. And... 10 as you say even 10 years 50, I I had to be right right okay and I would fight my corner even if in the middle of that fight I was like fuck I'm not right <laughs> <laughs> I'm still swinging I'm digging, I'm yeah, digging in here and that's yeah. what I used to do and this is when it starts mindfulness starts to to kind of seep into your everyday life mm. and how you look at things and that really changes a lot maybe it's too personal but like I'm listening to you and you're like I'm just thinking you're you've evolved so much you're so like you know it's it's incredible to listen to 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 you because I know that you're you're speaking your truth you're not just sitting here saying it for the sake of saying it but your partner then is also you know she's she's incre- she's incredible in her own right and, and a psychologist so when you guys argue over something are you able to kind of sort it out 
really calmly, really quickly. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. Like this is the thing. Like what what we are very good at is if that argument becomes, and it could be a silly argument. And conflict, when you love somebody, conflict is part of it. It's sure. just literally part of life. It's, yeah. You got to accept it, and there's going to be things, and that can kind of there's going to be emotional charges. But what we're very good at repair is repair, but also. If something happens, say, for example, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a complete arsehole. Rather than her react, she'll go, right, he's been, he's had a really difficult three days. It's been this, that he probably hasn't slept much. He's doing this. And we make these kind of some things in our heads before we react. Yeah. Cool. And then we'll go, oh, actually, listen, are you, like, and I won't, not in a condescending, patronizing way, but it'll be like, right, it's been a tough couple of days. Let's not have this conversation right now. It's that kind of stuff. And it's just self-awareness. If we've had the most... Like when you look at each other, going, "Jesus, are we not meant to know what we're doing here?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. Like we yeah. have that because yeah. emotion is powerful and it can shift and change and it can take the rational out of your head. And anxiety, more than anything, can make the impossible possible. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. So you start to think of all this stuff, and you know, we all are humans. We all have insecurities and worries and shit like that. And, and it's, we all have buttons that can be pressed. Oh yeah, I have. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing with me is that those buttons, um, I. The people that used to press them, I now am very clear with them that they've done that and they do that. And there's probably things I do that might tip them off a little bit as well. And so Louise has this amazing saying, she says, avoidance is the root of all disorder. The mm. the ability, sometimes you have to have these pretty difficult conversations that are uncomfortable to have, but they're crucial. And I always say, I talk about communication and mindfulness as my most important, the most area I'm most interested in when it comes to mindfulness. There's four types of communication in conflict. Mm-hmm. And, and anyone listen to this, conflict's part of life, get over it. You got to learn to live a conflict. It's not something we seek out, most of us, but it happens professionally, socially, personally. There's four ways we communicate. First way is passive aggression. And in the history of humankind, it's never worked. It's unsustainable. You talk about button pu- pushing. Passive aggression is the, the, the surest quickest way to push people's buttons because if you do react people go well you're just being sensitive so there's a complete defense mechanism mm. the second type of communication is confrontational so that's like where you just have to be right mm. and you're like and you're angry and you're aggressive and you're in people's faces uh, that doesn't work it might work for a couple of days if you're a manager and you need to get something done and you, you, you get you get up into people's faces but they ain't going to respect you for, for weeks They're going you're going to lose them your third is passive the person goes I don't like drama tough shit drama's part of life the final one's mindful communication and mindful communication is the ability to see the world from the other person's point of view it's to take the lens on how you're viewing the world and look at it even if you disagree with them yeah and when you're in the rage as as much as we do you know a lot of us do work on ourselves it's it's hard to get to that point isn't it oh yeah no I've I've (laughs) grinded teeth and like and the thing is like an example of that would be if you get an email an RC email Mm. and it's a Friday evening and you you're like right and you're straight onto the laptop and keyboard and you send back this arse, you're going to have an awful weekend. Oh, yeah. Because you're going to think of, oh, my God, I shouldn't. If you just say, that soldier. close it, <laughs> come back to it on Monday. Yeah. And I guarantee you, it'll be a slightly different response because yeah. you're, even from a physiological point of view, you're getting out of that amygdala hijack. You're getting yeah. out of that irrational thinking part of the brain and you're getting into the neocortex and you're going, right, okay, that was an arsey feckin' email mm. to send on a Friday evening. Maybe the first protocol you goes, right, who's who's on his or her case? What's happening with them? Is there something happening? I mean, this might even be true, but it's slowing your reaction down. Yeah. And the mindful communication, I say, is language like, so there's a brilliant book called Non-Violent Communication by Marshall uh, Rosenberg, I think, Rosenberg, I think it is. 
And it is about this very thing. You use language like, how do we progress this? What can we do to sort this? Is everything okay with you? Can I help you? And, you know, don't say things like, this is unlike you, because that's passive aggression. You know, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of, it's slightly gaslighty. Yeah. But also, it's important because gaslighting has been thrown around as a word, left, right, and center everywhere. Gaslighting isn't when somebody disagrees with you. Mm. It's an emotional manipulation thing. It's a it's a very difficult thing. It's a horrible circle to be in. But sometimes people, I've seen it in you know LinkedIn, for example, where a manager would say something to somebody. Was my manager gaslighting me? I said, why? Because they they said they didn't think so. You know, with the with full context of their situation, they go. Yeah. Something I, I but that's not that's their job. They're appraising you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we got to be careful with yeah, the, the, the line that we cross yeah. and use gaslighting and use big, powerful language that has real difficult connotations. And I start applying it to anything and everything you want. It's not. It's not good. Labeling is a really difficult thing we start to do because once you throw a label on somebody, even if it's not real, it's very hard to shake it. And we talk a lot about narcissism on the podcast and the. We, our biggest ever listened to podcast in my mind is the narcissist nightmare. Mm. And it's it's about that very thing and gaslighting and, and how it works and how it's manipulated. And we need to understand it, but we need to not apply it where it doesn't need to be applied because... That's that, doing it a disservice, a disservice. To, to everyone. And it's like people who, you know, say, and, and it's, the, they, it's, not, it's not about pointing fingers, but flippantly say, I'm depressed when maybe they are down and mm-hmm. they, they do need a bit of assistance. Well, and they we do also need to look, look at, at that. The, like you look at the pandemic, for example, and we do, we do pathologicalize what can be normal human behavior. Like I look at the pandemic and I say to people, if you're rinsed after that and you're, you really feel exhausted and you know, you know, sleeping has gone a little bit haywire on you. That's probably quite a healthy response to what we've gone through. Yeah. You know, th- that that hasn't been easy. And the other thing I've talked a lot about is the word resilience. I really find the way it's used as slightly, uh, uh, slightly intellectually dishonest, if I'm honest about it. it it's like you work places to go, we're going to put a resilience program in so we can make you work 60 hours a week and we don't feel bad about it. That is not resilience. That's mm. just madness. Resilience is the ability to come back from adversity, the ability to find a way back from adversity. That's what it is. That's the definition of it. It isn't the ability to ignore adversity or to have resilience programs. So, for example, guys, we need to work 65 hour weeks. And that that's not resilience. That's just unsustainable, silly behavior. So I think sometimes we use back to language words like resilience and we throw it around for every particular program, for anything you want to do. And it's such a powerful word when it's used rightly. Mm. And I think that's something I'm, you know, it's not me being overprotective of language. It's actually the opposite. It's like, use it wisely and it's very powerful. Yeah. Throw it around left, right and center. And it feels like we we diminish the power of that word. Mm. I heard you say in the past that you had a fear of water. Mm. And your recent post on Instagram is you in a kayak mm. and you're training for... What is it? The the Shannon? The, we call it the Shannon Jams, which is me and my mates going down. The, we're, we're kayaking from, from source to sea. For, we're doing the full length of the Shannon in a kayak. Um, I know you've long overcome your fear of water, but I suppose 
when you talk about how you were as a kid and your struggles when you were playing rugby, even at that stage, and versus where you're at now, and it hasn't been an easy road, and you've done a lot of work on yourself. But if you hadn't been brave enough to actually go down that road of, I need help, I need to do something for myself, where do you think you might be? Um, I I would I I really am I really don't know. Uh, it was. Maybe that's too difficult a question. No, it's to not. Ask. I I actually think where I got to was to such a place that I really just did not have a choice. Rock I really bottom. didn't. Yeah. And. What it, was the turning point? A panic attack yeah. before the live show, The Voice. Yeah. Do yeah, you know what? I was going to ask you while you yeah. were talking about it, but yeah. Yeah, that was it. That was that, it. That was the kind of. 10 minutes later and mm. the entire world would have seen this well everyone watching would have seen it. the entire it was a ridiculous thing to say but people watching no, would have yeah, seen yeah. it yeah. and in my own head I was like that that would have been it that would have been and it would have been it wouldn't have been in my terms it wouldn't have been like I was taking beta blockers to go on live television mm. and sometimes Valium just to get through it and I was thinking and I wasn't scared of doing live TV I was terrified of somebody seeing me vulnerable on live TV Yeah, that was the difference and I remember that day, just I got back to my hotel and I collapsed. I literally, because to sit upright for 90 minutes after a panic attack and hold my shit together, because you're terrified. It's like an earthquake. You're like, is this going, is it going, there's going to be an aftershock here where they ask me a question and I can't speak or I'm like, like I was kind of scratching my leg the whole time. And it was like, like this is, sorry for being crude about the smell of vomit off me. I could smell it. I had vomited trying to catch my breath. I had cut my uh, neck from trying to, you know, it's very physical for me. It was always a very physical one. And this was just, and I just remember it was slow motion and there was our amazing stage manager. She's an unbelievable woman. She was kind of shouting to get to the stage. And I was on the floor like going, well, what am I going to do? I couldn't ring Ann Doyle and say, give me 20 minutes. I'm going to get my shit together here. It was just yeah. so, and, and you know what that also did that night? It made me realize that I will never, ever, ever let anybody tell me that people who struggle with this are weak. They're the toughest people on earth. They are, they're not those really poor imageries that we show of young people in dark rooms with their hands over their heads anytime we talk about mental health in the paper. Yeah. That's the imagery we create of it. It isn't. They're the toughest people. They have to be. And I tell the story that I think is really important. I, I had a, a person that I met and became quite good friends with him but he he had a daughter very 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 clever incredible daughter who was massively uh, struggling with social anxiety I mean really it was really difficult for her she was doing her demon turn and um, she couldn't do her like her French orals and her Irish she was really she was struggling to leave the house okay. at this point and it was it was pretty bad and his relationship with her was breaking down right because he couldn't understand it and he was getting frustrated and they were very close and that relationship breaking down I think would have probably been very difficult for her and so I met him and he was he was I mean he got it he was he was break he was crying he just didn't know what to do and I just said to him one thing I knew about him is that he will not get in an airplane he just won't get in an airplane it's just no matter what you say to him forget about it I am not getting he's like B.A. Barack it's not happening not doing it not going on an airplane mm. and I said well what if I told you tomorrow morning you got to get in one just that's all there is to it what would happen he said I would run until nobody could catch me I would literally hide in the corner and that would be it I said well okay that's what it's like for your, your daughter to leave the house so now all of a sudden 
Yeah. He could feel what it felt like. Yeah. He it wasn't up to him to decide whether it was rational fear or not. In the same way it wasn't up to me to go, dude, flying is grand. It's not now he he felt it. So now he looked at his daughter and went, You are one of the strongest people I know. Because you're getting up every day and going to school and you're facing that fear. Imagine I had to get up every day and get an airplane. I wouldn't be able to sleep ever. I wouldn't function. So that's the power of it. You're now getting into the feeling part of it. Feel that. Feel what your daughter feels like. And now all of a sudden, she's in, she did, she's in, she she's studying, I think, in, in London now. She's doing really, really well because right. their relationship got stronger. He mm. understood. He went to therapy with her. They helped each other. They guided each other. She felt understood, validated, supported. And, you know, don't get me wrong, she still had to deal with all this stuff. But now because of her, fa- her relationship with her father was strong, she felt she had an emotional scaffolding to deal with what she was dealing with. Yeah. This is... This is it. This is how we create uh, understanding. And people listen to this who might have a daughter or a child or anybody in their life that's struggling. Don't try to understand the reasons for it. Try to understand what it must feel like. Brilliant and advice. that changes a lot Brilliant for advice. how you look at the world. Again, you know, making a difference. Um, let's talk about the show. Yes. What show? Oh, Your yeah. Show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a fucking show. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah. So long story short with the podcast, like over the pandemic with the wake up wind downs and where's my mind, I put out 1,455 podcasts. Did you? That was my. That's phenomenal. I, so I was doing two a day, every day, 365 days a year. Yeah. And that was the wake up wind downs. And then once a week, where's my mind? And you were doing all your Instagram lives and everything as yeah. well. Like it was well, I had nothing else to do. So I was at home with my parents. Yeah, I was yeah. cocooning my parents and like literally locked in my mum's spare room <laughs> with an 80s mattress that literally my mum will not get rid of <laughs> and as acoustic treatment. Okay. And then like these duvets that about 10 dogs have used over the years. <laughs> so I was like, well, like, listen, when I leave here, I'm buying you a new mattress and we're going to show that joke out. But we were, that's how I was making my podcast. I, I announced three or sorry two tours live podcast tours and to put a live podcast tour is a pain in the hoop i mean it is so much work you have to write it you have to plan it you have to work with the promoters the agencies everything you've got to put it all on their line and it's a lot of work every second time i announced the tour another wave will come yeah literally a day or, or even a week before the tour came and we we're like oh shit this isn't going to happen so i did two the second tour like we were out, we thought we were out of COVID as much as we could be. We thought we were good. And then some, it just, you could see it in the language of the politicians. I was like, oh no, no, oh, no. this is coming again. Yeah. So every time I announce the tour, there's another wave. So I was terrified. I better not do this to the public again because yeah. it's my fault. So I just said, I'm not doing it again. I was like, I'm not having it. And then I decided to tip my toe back in the water and do a show. And that was the Olympia, the three Olympia, which is my favorite venue in the country. And I was like, I want to do a live podcast in the Three Olympia. I want to write something that I think would be really beautiful and special and supportive and funny. More than anything, people have this thing, oh, look, going, going to a, a podcast about culture and mental health. Oh, no, that's not mental health. Mental health is everything. It's 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 beautiful. It's sad sometimes. It's fucking hilarious. So yeah. in my mind, the stories I tell you about, like you're going, like they're they're just they're just mad yeah but they're funny <laughs> yeah and then the other thing i wanted to do was like the other biggest part of my life was music and i wanted to i wanted to write and score and comp- compose piano music that related to how i felt because mm. piano got me through my my life my, my granny gave me a piano when she died when i was a child and it became 
the biggest gift I was ever given. So I talk about that at the, at the live show and I pl I've composed these songs and I've also got Adam Clayton <laughs> from U2, which is another... Name I, drop. Yeah, it was a pretty... You see, I had him on the podcast cool. and it just didn't feel like we finished our conversation. Okay, yeah. And I said to him, listen, I want to do this on stage. And he was like, yeah, love to do it. And I, I, I've become good, good, quite good mates with him and over the years. And he's an incredibly... I talk about when we talk about emotional intelligence, that that lad has it. Like yeah. he has it. He looks at the world in a very interesting way, and you you know he really does. And he's he's obviously got a different lens on how he sees the world, but he's got this real cultural heart that he cares a lot about this country, especially, mm. uh, which I find really reassuring. And I don't mean it like like a YouTube like like you got to look at him like he's not in YouTube. I suppose is a good way to start. Okay. You, know, you get a bit yeah, blind yeah. by the fact he's a bass player in the biggest rock band in the world. Yeah. You got to just take him aside and you got to look at the 13 year old Adam Clayton and that's how you have to interview him. That's the interesting part for me. Um, and he goes there with you, which is great. Well, that'll be interesting. And it's on Friday the 28th of April. I probably should put the date. Yeah, in, yeah. Well, don't worry. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll have mentioned that anyway. But um, I'd say people are in for uh, you know a unique experience so because the fact that you've already spoken and you have a relationship so is it do you prep much for chats or will you just kind of go with the flow I just don't interview someone I think I'm gonna have to prep <laughs> it's probably the best like you want that natural yeah conversation and live setting you don't want cards you don't want to be too too framed on it yeah so like you're not gonna like in my in my case you're not some of the interviews I do for whereas my mind is kind of hardcore academics who have a point they want to make about a certain research they did you wouldn't carry that in a live show. It just wouldn't it wouldn't translate enough. There's academics who are amazing who talk about all different types of things. But if you're if you're talking about one specific subject, you can't you can't be kind of going, this is exactly what the audience want to talk about. You gotta yeah, think about yeah. what do the audience want here? They want a really broad but intimate conversation about different things, about life. So you gotta give them like I'd love to chat to certain people about certain things but like I don't think the audience would like that mm. so yeah it, it, it's picking your picking your guests is crucial and the other thing you need in podcasting and live podcasting I have you need someone who's prepared to tell the story so you get you know you, you touched on it here so the other thing I have in the podcast I've stopped using really big names who are very media protected and they're media protected because they're they're heartbroken with some of the stuff that gets taken out of contact when they mm. talk about it. Mm. They open themselves a little bit and it gets twisted in a way that makes them look generally quite silly. So what you have now is big names who go, I just, I'll do the podcast, but I'm not talking about this, 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 and this. And I'm like, oh, I, I don't, I, I understand why you're saying that, but I, I'm more interested in big stories, not big names. The reason podcasting has such a power and such a pervasive power now in the media landscape is because, you know, I'm often asked, about people why didn't you say that on the radio I says because you have three minutes yeah and you have you know very well know well that the person you're, you're interviewing has been told by the producer they got to go to ads and it feels panicky and you go i got to get every line perfect and mm. this line has to be i got to get what i need to say and i got to get it across i don't like communicating like that and it's the same with television you know generally when you do an interview there's a time limit and which is completely understandable as well because you don't need someone like me talking shit for 90 minutes but when you get a podcast, you get to unlayer things. You get to go back to things and you get to go, right. And you get some poor fecker who has to edit it then. <laughs> but it is, it is, it's a really useful way to communicate these things. And when you get somebody willing to come with you and chat with you, and I've had some amazing interviews with people. Like I interviewed Zach Williams, who's Robin Williams' son, and was in the room with them. 
and it was very emotional. Yeah. Like, because all I saw was Robin Williams. Mm. All I could see. Every time he smiled, every mannerism. And then, like, he said something that, like, I I actually just, I remember, thing, I didn't think he was saying, he says, I never I never got to grieve my dad because I, I shared my dad with everybody else. And he felt he had to front up for everybody else. And it was only a year after. But then at that point, the damage had been done and he'd fallen into addiction and post-traumatic stress and all these other things that come with it. And I'm just thinking the uh, the ability to have that space to hold him in that and just let him chat, chat and, you know, talk about this icon that I... Uh, and the Robin Williams death had this pretty big impact on me. And I remember why it's because in my head, I remember the very day and quite selfishly felt if he can't beat this, will I be able to? And that was, I said, I didn't know what I should say that to Zach. Yeah. And he goes, we all think like that. I was like, oh my God. And that was the thing. It was like, yeah, you know, you saw Robin Williams, you had this this image of who he was. And I just, I got that same feeling I got when Kurt Cobain died. Of like, Jesus Christ, like these are my heroes. Like imagine a very hugely famous, iconic, loved artist died like that now and the impact that would have on young people every 14 year old I knew was obsessed with Nirvana and we were told he was a coward and screamed in our face that had a huge impact on me so I I look back and I wrote for St. Patrick's Day two years ago they they asked me to write a piece about it and I wrote a piece called Teen Spirit and it was about basically me saying the words I should have heard that day these are the words I should have heard that day and if these words came out of that teacher's mouth this is what would have happened you know and it's like a spoken word piece for five minutes but I remember people when I wrote that I literally wrote it like it had all been written it just came out it's like poet, like just line for line knew exactly what I wanted to say and then we put it out and had this huge reaction and, and it must have felt good for you to do it oh my god yeah and it was like at the opening line I was 14 years old I never really heard those words before my hero's demise the 8th of April 1994 the class numbed days in a haze of a suffocating silence and when I look back I wonder did Ireland ever have a chance to take a breath and that was the opening line and that was the scene of the classroom so that that's the stuff that it feeds into you and every time something like that happens it adds to your experience as a human being so whatever age I am now 42 Every single thing that happened to me along the way has contributed to me kind of going, I've had enough of this shit and mm-hmm. we got to do, we got to do it better than this. And what can I do to the, to contribute to it? And that's why we set up a lust for life, which as I said, is the thing I'm most proud of because it's really difficult to set up something like that yeah, and to create advocacy and also to make people understand what mental health advocacy actually is because we're not service providers, so we're not providing therapy, but we're providing advocacy to, to, to try and create a better social system and, and health system to support people. So it's, it's, it's a more of a difficult thing, a lot more work in it. So, yeah, that's something in the team that we built and the organization we built are, you know, as I said, 1,000 prim- 1,050 primary schools now um, with these programs. Yeah, yeah, it's really brilliant. When you're in the wings for the show, when you're about to step on stage, how do you think? I know it's a it's a hypothetical because it hasn't actually happened yet, but just based on experience and, you know, whether you're coming out, you know, with the band, doing your thing or, you know, uh, giving a talk or whatever it might be, what will the mood be like, do you think? Mm-hmm. How, how will the nerves be? And what I'm trying to kind of connect you with is how you felt that time when you had to take to the stage for The Voice. Mm-hmm. Um, like how different are those two guys? 
indescribably different. Like yeah. I have, I, I like, you know, for somebody who stra- who struggled with panic disorder for most of his teenage and adult life, uh, I haven't experienced a panic attack in about seven years. Brilliant. Uh, and I'm not saying that won't ever happen to me again. I get I get uncomfortable. I get uneasy. But I, I see it for what it is. It's just uneasiness. It's uncomfortableness. I don't associate or put a huge label label on it or, or else or I don't give it the power it would have had like years ago if I got that uneasiness. I would immediately think, oh, it's coming back now. Okay, and giving it too much energy. Then I'd be giving it too much power. Now I'm like, right, it just is. I'm a human being. I have shit days. That is just... And I know the difference between when you hit a particular place where it feels very dysfunctional and that could happen. I could lose someone I love and not be able to deal with it properly. Grief is the most torturous of all pains you just don't know but I think with uh, stage is not where I'm uncomfortable stage is where I'm most at ease and comfortable mm. but the only thing I'm thinking is my parents are coming <laughs> and um, my dad was like I kind of want to come I said that no bother I said but you do get a bit of shit here now just so you're aware and he's like what do you mean I said, there's just a few setups where like I was like, like one of the opening lines I'm saying in the monologue is like that my dad brought us my dad who loved us dearly brought us to the border between Lebanon and Israel <laughs> when there was complete peace in the Middle East until the day the presence landed in Tel Aviv <laughs> and operation accountability and we drive up into the middle of it and my dad's like you know what I mean thumbs up and I'm like okay but like it's that type of stuff and then my mum gets a bit of she gets really annoyed when I say it was the 80s like we survived on tin meatballs ravioli and, and potato waffles and she's like I did I, I said mum ma no hey we all did we all did I remember five actually, of us. speaking of your mum I remember being on uh, we were we were we were on a show it was it was the I think it was the after show for Dancing with the Stars first year of it and they had uh, Blondish Tracy as a pre- was a presenter of it. Anyway, we were on as guests and I was pregnant with uh, with my boy, Kahal, who's now five and a half. And, and uh, you're like, how are you feeling about, you know, childbirth? And I was like, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, I want to have a natural birth if I can. And he said, yeah, I, I, I think you said you're, I was 12 pounds. Am I, I right? Tw- yeah. And yeah. I just, I remember like gripping the chair. I was like, well, I, was 12. I think I was 13 pounds. Were you? Yeah. Were you? Yeah, I had teeth and hairy chest coming out. <laughs> And it was, it was so funny. It's like, I always make the joke. That's one of the jokes. I say, well, it's not a joke, but I say like, uh, my mum didn't look me in the eye for 10 years. Maybe that's where the mental health damage done. She couldn't hold me like, but it's, that's what I'm talking about. And she's, she's a legend. There, but she, she, what a queen. she said, she, she said, not about her. She's a, a grand. I was like, maybe gravity just took over. Her. But I just, that's this like running joke that like my dad came in to visit us and mum was in the incubator and I was sitting up with a Toblerone. <laughs> Watching watching TV like oh she's in the incubator there, <laughs> you know what I mean. So, but uh, yeah, and uh, like and the, apparently the doctor that 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 delivered me was uh, a rugby player, uh, Irish rugby player, and he said he's going to play rugby. They, wow, yeah, it's so, a sense of it. Yeah, he must have known, but uh, I fell out. She said, but uh, but uh, anyway. <laughs> I, I don't tell that story too often to anyone who's who's currently <laughs> yeah. know, pregnant. We were all bruisers, but yeah, I have more respect for that woman than anyone else in this planet. That's for sure. Uh, cool. Uh, the show sounds fantastic, and uh, life at the moment cleaning up uh, Stevie's St- Stevie's little poos. Little poos. Um, yeah. And there's another. You know what one I love about on dogs way? as well. Go on. You like you can fart, and you can blame on them. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. It's such. It. You know how freeing that is. Genuinely. Okay, so after the love that they give you, the unconditional love is the perk <laughs> is blaming first. Did you never hear that joke? I'm <laughs> no. probably not going to make the podcast, but I'm going to put it anyway. The guy, no. guy going on his, this first date with this girl he really fancied. Like right. He was like, I really like this girl. I want to make this work. And yeah. he's been brought to, it was a third date and he was being brought to meet the, her parents. 
and he'd been out the night before and he was absolutely dying and he, he sat in he sat in, in the in into their house and he was sitting at the table and he, he, he goes, Oh no, oh no, I have to fart. <laughs> and he let this fart and it was awful. And the dad kicks the dog, he goes, Get out, you little <laughs> to the dog. And he was like, Oh, thank God, he thinks it's the dog. Oh, thank God, so relieved because he wasn't feeling great at all. He let another one and the dad kicks the dog and he goes, Will you get out, you little fecker? And then he lets another fart and the dad, the dad tells the dog, get out before he shits on you. He says, before that lad shits on you. Um, but um, yeah, no, it's good to be able to blame poor old Stevie. We're getting a lovely insight into your mind. Yeah, know? sorry. I, I just, I'm now realising I'm going slightly hyperglycemic. I haven't eaten in four hours. Okay, so, we got to get you out of yeah. here and get you fed. Okay, the show sounds fantastic. Thank you for being here. Uh, I've wanted to talk to you for so long, oh, so I'm thank glad you for we made it happen. You know, seriously, it's it's been brilliant. And I know that if you came back next week and we had a chat, another chat, it'd be probably totally different, which is the joy with somebody like you. You can just go anywhere. So enjoy Life with Stevie and any other new additions that come into the house. Because yes. I know you're talking about fostering others. Uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to figure out how we get out. we have an animal shelter. Yeah. I would love, the you know what? You so, know what? What a dream thing to have if you had it. Like the work they do is amazing. But like, yeah, I... That's going to be headline now in an online article. Oh yeah, no. But Bre- Brezzy, Brezzy looks to open. No, I think we'll leave, Linda Martin's nailed it. I think. <laughs> yeah, let, let good honour. Like, that's amazing. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks a million, guys. And if you want to go to Niall's podcast show next Friday, the 28th of April in the Three Olympia, head to Ticketmaster to grab the last few tickets. And if you like this episode, please share it with friends, family or on social media. And you can support what I do in all the usual ways by clicking follow, giving a rating or leaving a little comment. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Ready To Be Real. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.